Alright, so when last we left Odysseus, he had just washed up on the island of the Phaeacians. Nausicaa was making googly eyes at him, and nobody actually knew who he was. Um, we pick up right about there. Um, we admittedly skip book 7 and the first half of book 8. Mostly this describes Odysseus getting treated like a king, the way you're supposed to treat beggars and vagrants who wash up on your shores. Again, hospitality is very much one of the major themes that we need to pay attention to here, and this is a good example of it. Um, but notice, again, the hospitality is like better than average. The suggestion seems to be that if Odysseus wanted, he would definitely be able to stay on this island. If Nausicaa is that interested in him, if the family is that wel welcoming to him, it would be totally cool for Odysseus to call it here at the end of his journey and say, all right, I'm living with the Phaeacians now. And we, you can see that there's actually a lot of perks to that. Um, the Phaeacians are distinct, uh, as we hear in this chapter, because all of their ships do not have oars or sails. They apparently are, like, navigated by telepathy. And as a result, they always make it to their destination. And Poseidon is apparently really sore at the Phaeacians. And at some point, he's going to punish them by, like, building a mountain around them. Um, it's kind of weird exactly how the Phaeacians work. But it's an interesting detail all the same. Um, for our purposes, it's important to note that finally, like, Odysseus makes it to the island with the perfect never-failing ships, which has to make Poseidon so mad at this point, because, like, Poseidon has been hounding him every step of the way, and now here we really do have a safe haven. Like, this is fated to be Odysseus's last stop on the way to Ithaca, and it makes sense that this would be it. Like, even Poseidon can't screw him over at this point. Um... But it's also worth noticing exactly how they entertain him, especially here in book eight. Um, the emphasis is um, like we pick up the story when the bard starts to perform. And you'll notice that Odysseus um, like makes a request. So he says on page five or line 515, Harold, take this cut of meat to Demodocus for him to eat and I will greet him despite my grief. Bards are revered by all men upon earth, for the muse loves them well and has taught them the song ways. So, we didn't talk much about it last time, though we definitely could have. Now it's a lot more obvious. Um, part of the whole theme of memory that we haven't touched on all that much here, though it certainly ties into many of our other themes, is memory in the sense of history which is very much communicated by the bards in Homer's day and indeed in classical Greece as well. Remember, like, the Odyssey itself is probably being sung by a bard. Reading it on the page is an unnatural way to approach this text. Usually it would be some bard with his harp and a couple of dudes with drums playing their way through the epic poem, usually over the course of an entire night, and you would just sit there listening to it. Um, and it's interesting that Homer pays a lot of attention to the bards in this particular story. Um, you'll notice that, I think it's Phineas, or something along those lines. It definitely starts with a PH. 
Um, we'll run into him again, so don't worry about the name at this point. Back in book one, Telemachus and the suitors were listening to a bard who was playing for them unwillingly, but was also like the main source of entertainment. And everybody reacted to him well, too. Like, notice that Penelope, she breaks into tears when she hears this song about the return from Troy. We have something similar happen now. Um, Odysseus obviously tips Demonicus, gives him a cut of this meat. He praises him. Bards are revered by all men upon earth, for the muse loves them well and has taught them the song ways. But then he goes on. So, like, Demonicus is excited about this. Odysseus talks to him. Do you take requests? Um, around line 525, we see, I don't know whether it was the muse who taught you or Apollo himself, but I praise you to the skies, Demonicus. When you sing about the fate of the Greeks who fought at Troy, you have it right. All they did and suffered, all they endured, it's as if you had been there yourself or heard a first-hand account. But now, switch to the building of the wooden horse which Apeus made with Athena's help, the horse which Odysseus led up to Troy as a trap, filled with men who would destroy great Ilion. If you tell me this story just as it happened, I will tell the whole world that some god must have opened his heart and given to you the divine gift of song. So, a couple things to parse here. First off, notice that Odysseus refers to himself in the third person. That's because he is in disguise. Um, he has not revealed his identity to anyone. Like, even Nausicaa doesn't know who this is. Um, the actual disguise is ambiguous. He kind of just doesn't tell anyone what's going on, so they all just make assumptions. Um, so... At the end of the day, like, Odysseus is once again in disguise. He is talking about this song as though he wasn't a participant. He does let slip that it seems like he was, in fact, at Troy here. When you sing about the fate of the Greeks who fought at Troy, you have it right. It's as if you had been there yourself. Like, only somebody with authority who had been there himself would be able to say this. So he kind of lets slip a little bit there he'll let slip even more once the bard starts singing and odysseus just breaks down into tears um apparently hearing about all of his fallen comrades hearing about his own role in this causes him to really get upset in fact we get one of these poetic uh, epic metaphors a woman wails as she throws herself upon her husband's body he has fallen in battle before the town walls fighting to the last to defend his city and protect his children as she sees him dying and gasping for breath she clings to him and shrieks while behind her soldiers prod their spears into his shoulders and back and as they lead her away into slavery, her tear-drenched face is a mask of pain. So too Odysseus, pitiful in his grief. So he manages to hide it from everyone but Alcinous, but at this point he's kind of revealed, and he expresses, yes, I am in fact Odysseus, and he embarks on this long story, which is the rest of our passage for today, and indeed next time's passage as well. Um, but I want to take this apart even more. Notice, notice the way that the bard just interacts with these characters, the way that they react to the bard, the role that the bard plays. Um, Odysseus is profoundly moved here, and the metaphor stresses that it's almost like he is suffering himself. He is like a woman weeping over the corpse of her husband as she is carried off into slavery. Um, Odysseus recognizes, like, the Iliad was the last time he was happy. Um, the last time before he had met with all of his misfortunes in his travels trying to get home. Um, it is as though, like, the, this, 
loss, this loss of the Iliad, the, his comrades, his war, um, has caused him to be as bereft as, as this woman. His journey left completely stranded is like being enslaved. Um, the metaphor is particularly powerful and particularly apt here. But also notice this is the bard who accomplishes this. And this is the second time that we have a character saying, like, you lifting to listening to a bard is the greatest thing in the world. Um, Odysseus stresses how awesome Demodocus is. He stresses how beautiful the story is. And, um, like, he stresses that. Uh, even when Alcinous is trying to like stop Demodocus playing the lyre because he's upset, like the first lines in in Book Nine are, "What could be finer than listening to a singer of tales such as Demodocus with a voice like a god's?" Um, likewise, Telemachus says something very similar um, when Penel when Penelope is upset about the song that the bard is singing at their table. Um, Telemachus rebukes her and says, "You know what." What better is there than to listen to a bard? Um, now, we should definitely take that with a bit of a grain of salt because, you know, this is free advertising <laughs> in a manner of speaking. Like, this is a bard telling us that bards are awesome. Um, so there is a certain sort of, like, advertising or marketing going on here. But I think it's more than that. Like, I think there really is an honest respect for the profession something that is in fact representative of the culture at large um like this isn't just indoctrination you will listen to more bards because bards are the best um but also a reflection of what's happening bards really are the best they are your historians they are your artists they are your poets they are your praisers and flatterers. They are your entertainment. Um, like bards have a lot of functions and singing also performs a lot of functions. You'll also notice that when, like as we wrap up Odyssey 8 and move on to book 9, Odysseus becomes a bard. Like Alcinous asks him, what are you doing here? Who are you? Are you, you know, did you in fact fight in Troy? And Odysseus responds by telling us a four book long epic poem within an epic poem about how he got here. Um, Odysseus is performing in the same way that a bard would perform. He is storytelling in the same way that a bard is storytelling. And while based on the context, it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that Odysseus is telling the story in prose, um, it's still told to us in poetry. Like there is literally no difference between the song that your bard is singing to you now, the song of the Odyssey, and the job that the Odyssey or the song that Odysseus is performing at this moment in this greater song. Like this is a song within a song and Odysseus is therefore a bard with that a bard is singing to you about. Um, it's interesting that this is Odysseus too. Like you've probably noticed that most characters in both the Iliad and the Odyssey will at the drop of a hat start telling their own stories. Um, like this happens all the time. You'll be seeing Il or Achilles in his tents 
suffer weeping about Patroclus. And when somebody asks him what he's going to do, he's going to use an example of like Niobe weeping for her children. Um, like he will tell a myth to explain his own situation. We've seen multiple times characters who are asked about their origins or what they're doing here in disguise and sometimes not in disguise, stopping everything and telling a story. Um, Athena did this when she was disguised in Odyssey book one. Odysseus does it now. Um, Telemachus does it when he is talking to Menele Menelaus. Um, all of the characters will frequently refer to events in their past lives and basically perform the work of a bard, do storytelling. Um, so keep, in, keep this in mind as we go along because the bards are important in this story. And everyone arguably is a bard at one point or another. Um, everybody gets a storytelling moment. Um, this is the biggest one. Again, four books long. Like, we're going to have to break it into two sections, half today, half next time. Um, but nonetheless, it's significant that this idea of memory is very much wrapped into this idea of storytelling, the art of memory, in a manner of speaking. This means that it's tied to Apollo and the Muses, like Odysseus points out now for Demodocus. There's a lot going on here. So, yeah, as we talk about Odysseus's adventures, the stuff that led him to Calypso and finally to Phaeacia, keep in mind this is all song. This is all expressed from Odysseus's perspective, and again, as a song within a song, much like we saw with Orpheus in the Metamorphoses and all the songs that he sung, and how we had, like, Orpheus singing about Aphrodite, singing about Atalanta, a song within a song within a song. Like, bardception is something that happens a lot in the mythic tradition. Um, so, with that in mind, let's jump into the adventures of Odysseus as told by Odysseus. Because this is, like... This is probably the most famous section of the entire epic poem. Like, if you want the stuff that gets excerpted the most, Odyssey 9 through Odyssey, I guess it's 11, um, well, 12, really. This is the most famous part. Um, these are all of, like, the really exciting mythic adventures of Odysseus. Um, and while I do not want to downplay the sort of political stuff that's going on and all the hospitality stuff that's going on like if you are really excited about this book it's probably because of the next four books so um with that let's take a look because each of the adventures themselves are tied into the greater themes that are taking place in this book like every one of the adventures of of odysseus and his crew typically revolve either around hospitality or home seeking or home forgetting for that matter um they revolve around uh past memories and characters that have gone before like let's let's take a look so after this initial introduction when odysseus finally announces that he is in fact odysseus he starts this story and we start weirdly with the pillage of the circones um this is like a small little adventure it's easy to miss because it's not quite as um dynamic it's not as mythic it's just yet another episode of greeks like pillaging some random town before they set upon their way we saw the J that jason and the argonauts did this um we saw this happen before everybody sailed off for troy and indeed while the trojan war was going on so it's kind of easy to pass over this one but i want to draw attention to a couple little details 
So from Ilion, the wind took me to the Sakones and Ismeros. I pillaged the town and killed the men. The women and treasure that we took out, I divided as fairly as I could among all hands and then gave the command to pull out fast. So once again, it is a boilerplate smash and grab operation. Um, apparently in preparation for this long voyage, Odysseus and company pillage some random island, take all their women, take all their treasure, and then they just take off. Um, or rather, they would take off. Uh, he gives the command to pull out fast. That was my order, but the fools wouldn't listen. They drank a lot of wine and slaughtered a lot of sheep and cattle on the shore. Some of the town's survivors got away inland and called their kinsmen. There were more of them, and they were braver too, men who knew how to fight from chariots and on foot. Short version, they attack Odysseus and his crew, and a bunch of people are killed. Six people from each of the boats. Remember that Odysseus is here with his entire Ithacan contingent, everybody who came to the Trojan War. So we're talking about like five or six ships here in all likelihood, and each of the ships loses six men. Notice the reasoning, too, that Odysseus gives us. It's the crew's fault. Um, he gave the order to pull out fast. Again, smash and grab. Get in, get out always have an escape plan but instead everybody just sits around on shore like apparently this was such an easy fight that they're all getting complacent um they kill all the men so they figure eh we don't have anything to worry about let's sit here and party slaughter some animals get drunk all that good stuff but apparently there were survivors who escape and land summoned the next city over and they come in and there's an actual real deal battle and odysseus lose, loses a number of his men um as he says the rest of us cheated destiny and death so there's a sort of like again cheating fate here um which will return to this subject of fate later um, so they sail on, they hit a hurricane, because at this point, like, people are still mad at them. You'll remember that, like, everybody pissed off Athena for some reason earlier on, um, as is reported to Telemachus. Um, their second adventure, they hit the island of the Lotus Eaters. And to put, not to put too fine a point on it, but these are, like, these are drug addicts. I mean... To put it, like, really bluntly, it's really easy to imagine, you know, Odysseus and his crew walking along the plains and there are all these, like, really stoned people sitting around being like, hey, dude, what's the hurry? Why don't you sit and have a joint with us? Like, notice the way that they're described here. We went ashore, and the crews lost no time in drawing water and preparing a meal beside their ships. After they had filled up on food and drink, I sent out a team, two picked men and a herald, to reconnoiter and sound out the locals. This is pretty typical of Odysseus, at least until his next adventure, or next two, rather. Every time that they land on an island, they want to see what's up. Um, they want to reconnoiter. They want to scout the place. Um, there are lots of things that you can do once you have scouted the place. You could, as they did with the Sakones, pillage everything, take what they want, move along. Or you could see if there's anyone there who's willing to offer hospitality, which often is the case. Um, or maybe it's not a great place and you just like take some stuff and leave if it's uninhabited. Um, so they headed out and made contact with the lotus eaters, who meant no harm, but did give my men some lotus to eat. Whoever ate that sweet fruit lost the will to report back, preferring instead to stay there munching lotus, oblivious of, 
of home. I hauled them back wailing to the ships, bound them under the benches, then ordered all hands to board their ships on the double before anyone else tasted the lotus. They were aboard in no time and at their benches, churning the sea white with their oars. So apparently if you eat the lotus, you just get totally stoned and you have and you completely forget everything that you were doing. They do not report back and importantly note that three little that little three word tagline stay there munching lotus oblivious of home if you eat lotus you forget about home you forget that you are trying to get home you just stay there stoned out of your mind oblivious to your responsibilities which is why the lotus eaters are so dangerous there is something desirable about that this isn't just like a marijuana joint that isn't terribly dangerous this is on par with opium eating um, like people sitting around in opium dens completely oblivious to what's going on around them. So Odysseus herds them away. And notice he has to get rough with them. Like he has to drag them back to the ships, like screaming and kicking, bound, bind them under the benches, like tie them onto the ship, and then just get the hell out of Dodge before anybody else can eat any more lotus. Um, it's apparently that intoxicating, that desirable, offers that much of a high. Um, so once again, our two challenges here, first with the Sicones, it definitely drives home that like the crew is screwing over Odysseus. Here we see it again. The crew eats the Lotus. They lose the will to report back. They lose the memory of home. They forget what they're doing altogether. They forget about their, their effort to get home. This is one of the dangers that they will frequently run into finding situations that will cause them to forget that they want to go home. And again, we saw this with Calypso as well. Calypso offers an incredible temptation to, to Odysseus, way better than lotus eating, um, with the whole, like, stay with me, become a goddess, live with, or become a god, live with a goddess, have a great time for the rest of eternity, and Odysseus shoots it down. He is trying to get home. Home is more important. Remember, as he says, there's nothing better than having someone at your back, someone who can, like, welcome your friends and grieve your enemies with you. Um, that's what they're trying to get back to. That is the whole purpose of life, and the, definitely the purpose of their voyage. So their third stop is the island of the Cyclopes. And this one we need to take apart in some detail because there is a lot going on here. Um, first, notice the way that Odysseus describes the island itself because he spends a lot of time talking about it. Like almost as much time just describing the island as he does with either of the last two adventures. We sailed on our morale sinking and we came to the land of the Cyclopes, lawless savages who leave everything up to the gods. These people neither plow nor plant, but everything grows for them unsown. Wheat, barley, and vines that bear clusters of grapes watered by rain from Zeus. They have no assemblies or laws, but live in high mountain caves, ruling their own children and wives and ignoring each other. Notice the emphasis here that they are savage and uncivilized. Now, I realize that we have, like, a lot of sort of racially motivated uh, associations with the term savage. Like, we think of, you know, when in early American colonialism and indeed, like, the 19th, up until the 19th century and beyond, people calling Native Americans savages. Um, that's 
inappropriate. They had civilization, it just looks different from, you know, white European settlers. But here what we're looking at is legit savagery, savageness, people with no hint of civilization. Um, this is an uncivilized island, no hint of human interaction of any kind. This isn't just a matter of like the Cyclopes are, you know, civilized in a way that we can't appreciate. We're saying that they're legitimately uncivilized. They let their land grow wild. They do not plant or harvest. And notice that that's what Odysseus specifically looks for. No wheat, no barley, no vines, except that which is born naturally, which is watered and tended by Zeus and not the actual inhabitants. They get even more specific in the next section. A fertile island slants across, across the harbor's mouth, neither very close nor far from the Cyclope's shore. It's well-wooded and populated with innumerable wild goats, uninhibited by human traffic. Not even hunters go there, tramping through the woods and roughing it on the mountainsides. It pastures no flocks, has no tilled fields, unplowed, unsown, virgin forever, bereft of men. All it does is support those bleeding goats. Here we have yet another completely uncivilized island, but this one also completely uninhabited. The Cyclopes don't sail, they emphasize, and have no craftsmen to build them benched red-proud ships that could supply all their wants, crossing the sea to other cities, visiting each other as other men do. These same craftsmen would have made this island into a good settlement. It's not a bad place at all and would bear everything in season. Meadows lie by the seashore, lush and soft, where vines would thrive. It has level plowland with deep, rich soil that would produce bumper crops season after season. The harbor's good too, no need for moorings, anchor stones, or tying up. Just beat your ship until the wind is right and you're ready to sail. At the harbor's head, a spring flows clear and bright from a cave surrounded by poplars. You may be wondering why Odysseus bothers to give us the, like, you know, tour guide brochure version of how to visit the Cyclope's awesome island. Um, but notice there are a couple things that are being emphasized here. First off, the Cyclopes have this really awesome freaking island, but they don't actually take advantage of it. Like, they're hanging out on the lesser of the two islands, which admittedly, they're just like living off the land, eating whatever Zeus provides for them. They are, they do in fact have their own flocks, as we'll see. Like Polyphemus is a shepherd, apparently. Um, but like all of the grain and stuff that they grow is completely accidental. It just grows wild in the fields. And they apparently don't even like use it that much. Um, they don't have assemblies. They don't have laws. They just rule in their own mountain caves. They all ignore each other. Each family takes care of itself. But Odysseus also stresses how great it would be if this land was exploited, especially this second fertile island. Well-wooded, populated with innumerable wild goats, uninhibited by human traffic, it pastures no flocks, no tilled fields, unplowed, unsown, and yet, if, it was, if they planted any crop, it would pr bring forth a bumper crop season after season. The meadows lie by the seashores where vines would thrive. That means they could grow grapes there. They could make wine there. The level plowland, that could be anything. Wheat, grain, you know, you name it, you could plant it there. It seems like it would support anything. And then even the harbor is perfect. It's not rocky or dangerous. You could, it's well protected from the sea and the currents and the winds. You could just hang out there forever. It's this perfect location. See, on the one hand, Odysseus is emphasizing that the 
cyclopes don't appreciate what they have. That's part of their savageness. The fact that they aren't using the resources that they have at their disposal. But the other factor here is this is another temptation. This is a really good island. It would be a great place to set up shop. You could build a palace on this island, build a, a farmland on this island, and you could just go for millennia. Like, it is perfectly suited to farming, and yet nobody is farming it. It wouldn't take a lot of effort for Odysseus and his crew to settle there. Remember, they stole a bunch of women from the Sicones, so it's not like, you know, it's just a bunch of dudes hanging around. They could make a settlement. They could colonize this island. Um, but at the same time, you'll notice that a couple of the details, especially the fact that it pastures no flocks, has no tilled fields, it supports these bleeding goats, but also it's well-wooded and populated with innumerable wild goats uninhibited by human traffic. It's almost better without civilization. There's this sort of di interesting dichotomy with this description. On the one hand, Odysseus is sort of jealous for this island. If only somebody settled here, if only somebody like civilized it, if only somebody taught the Cyclopes how to do law or how to plant grain, they could make so much out of this island. But at the same time, Odysseus kind of notices maybe it's better if nobody does. Maybe it's richer without human habitation. Maybe it's best that the Cyclopes are supported just by the gods, that they eat right off of the land without any preparation or civilization to back that up. Um, now, we should also keep in mind how, why exactly they act the way they do going forward. Because we just got this description of the Cyclopes as being savage. Notice Odysseus is telling this in hindsight. He already knows that the Cyclopes are savage when he's telling this story. At the time that they land, they don't know that they've landed on the island of the Cyclopes, and they don't know what the Cyclopes are like. Um, remember, every time that they land on an island, they tend to reconnoiter the place. They gotta scout it out, see what they're dealing with. Is it uninhabited? Can they take advantage of the natural resources? Is it inhabited? Can they get hospitality gifts? Or if it's inhabited and weak, we can like beat everybody up and take their stuff. Um, these are our options. So it's a good idea to know what we're dealing with. So obviously the first move that they make is they hit the land, they explore the place a little bit, they find a settlement, and they go there hoping to get hospitality gifts, hoping to take advantage of their host's hospitality. Now, notice that, notice the warning that Odysseus gives as he and the crew, like the little bit of the crew, go on their reconnaissance. The rest of you will stay here while I go, he says around line 170, with my ship and crew on reconnaissance. I want to find out what those men are like. Wild savages with no sense of right or wrong, or hospitable folk who fear the gods. Now again, notice the contrast. Savagery is people with no sense of right or wrong. Civilization is connected to morality, and morality is connected to hospitality. The alternative is hospitable folk who fear the gods. So we have this really interesting world picture that is sort of encapsulated in these lines. On the one hand, there are civilized places, and in those civilized places, you will meet people who respect the laws of hospitality, who observe worship of the gods and who act right and 
who know about right and wrong as a result. By worshiping the gods, they realize they have a responsibility to, to be hospitable, and they realize that they shouldn't just murder people, they have a sense of morality. On the other side are savages, people who don't know the gods, who don't observe their rules, who don't see a need for hospitality because there's no divine benefit to it, and who have no sense of right or wrong. Now, they come up to this one cave, and immediately they should honestly be suspicious at this point. Note the description here. With that, I boarded ship and ordered my crew to get on deck and cast off. They took their places and were soon whitening the sea with their oars. As we pulled in over the short stretch of water, there on the shoreline we saw a high cave overhung with laurels. It was a place where many sheep and goats were penned at night. Around it was a yard fenced in by stones set deep in the earth and by tall pines and crowned oaks. This was the lair of a huge creature, a man who pastured his flocks off by himself and lived apart from others and knew no law. He was a freak of nature, not like men who eat bread, but like a lone wooded crag high in the mountains. They come to a secluded cave, one separated from the rest of the caves on the island. So... What we're basically saying is, among the savage Cyclopes, we find one that even the savage Cyclopes can't stand. He is too savage for the savages. Um, he is too much a loner, too separate from those who are themselves loners separated from the gods and from men. This should be a red flag. Like, they should definitely not be charging into this dude's cave with no explanation. But that said, they show up. They bring a bunch of wine with them to present as a gift, like you do. Again, guests are responsible for gifts too when you can afford to do so. Um, so they sit in the cave and they wait for the owner to come home. And then we had noticed a strong premonition, line 205, that we had a rendezvous with a man of great might, a savage with no notion of right and wrong. As they sit there, trying to do their proper guest gift, performing the right hospitality rites, they increasingly are of the opinion that that's not the way this is going to pan out. That whoever it is who lives in this cave has no sense of right and wrong, is not pious, respectful of the gods, and is, will not, in fact, recognize the laws of hospitality. That said, they stay there. Not sure why. Like, definite big mistake on Odysseus's part. This is perhaps the dumbest we will ever see him. But we also get this sense that the reason why he's doing it is because of a sense of piety. He has stayed on their land, he has eaten their food, he has hunted their goats, he has taken advantage of their harbor. It only seems right to respect and recognize them, to observe the, rule, the proper rules of hospitality on the guest's end. I hung out on your island. It is Odysseus's responsibility to reach out to the inhabitants. So when Polyphemus actually does show up, slams the cave closed with like this giant boulder that none of the men can move, and then proceeds to start eating people, it's kind of a bad situation that they couldn't avoid. On the one hand, you know, we should be screaming, like, you know, while watching a horror movie, Get out of there! Obviously it's a trap! You're all gonna die! Like, look behind you! Um, but in Odysseus doesn't recognize that. There's a sense that he's obligated. He needs to be here. He needs to recognize their hospitality, whether unwitting or otherwise. But by the time that they realize that it's not something they should be observing, once they've reached out, 
it's already too late. They're locked in the cave, and Polyphemus is now, like, beating them up and eating them one by one. But notice, too, because this is really telling. At line 245, once Polyphemus comes in the door and sees all of these random people standing in his cave, he asks, Who are you, strangers? Sailing the seas, huh? Where from and what for? Pirates, probably, roaming around causing people trouble. Now... I'm really not sure why Homer drops this particular line in here. On the one hand, there's something sort of innocuous about it, like Polyphemus is just suspicious of everyone, so maybe he's just, like, jumps the conclusion that these guys are just pirates, and, you know, they're not, like Odysseus is trying to get home from Troy, as he explains, we are Greeks, blown off course by every wind in the world on our way home from Troy, traveling sea routes we never meant to by Zeus's will, no doubt. Um, we are proud to be the men of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, the greatest name under heaven, conqueror of Troy, destroyer of armies. Now we are here, suppliants at your knees, hoping you will be generous to us and give us the gifts that are due to strangers. Respect the gods, sir. We are your suppliants, and Zeus avenges strangers and suppliants. Zeus, god of strangers who walks at their side. Odysseus gives him his credentials. I am Odysseus. I fought with Agamemnon. We were at the battle. We were at the war with Troy. Like, we are not just a bunch of vagrant pirates looking for trouble. We're actually, you know, respectable individuals, heroes even. And we're here to take advantage of your hospitality. But there's a part of me that's like, wait a minute. What happened to the Sakones? Like, no explanation for, for what's going down with the Sakones. Did they offer you hospitality, Odysseus? No, we just jumped into that part of the story with you already mid-pillage. Are you guys not pirates, really? Like, does Polyphemus actually have the right idea here? Is Odysseus and his band just pirates and pillagers, miscreants? Is Odysseus actually asking for hospitality without telling us the whole story? Because notice Odysseus leaves out the business with the Sakones for the most part. He doesn't explain that they were godless. He doesn't explain why they pillaged the place. He just explains that they did pillage the place. So, you know, as much as we are typically aligned behind Odysseus, I kind of have to wonder if this is not one of his deceptions. Like, a multi-layered deception, even. Like, on the one hand, he is deceiving Polyphemus, but on the other hand, remember, it's Odysseus telling us this story. He, is he also deceiving us? Like, this little hinty line, pirates probably roaming around causing people trouble, I mean, they are causing people trouble. They are running away with other people's stuff. Like, they literally offer, they get Polyphemus drunk on the wine they stole. So... I wonder if Homer is aware of this. I'm honestly not sure. Like, I can't build a thesis around this. I don't have a conclusion. Um, I'm just kind of curious, because there is this weird sort of irony, whether intentional or unintentional, that Odysseus and company actually are pirates roaming around looking for trouble. Um, now, that said, the story continues regardless. But keep this in mind, because Odysseus is about to get totally screwed over by Polyphemus and Poseidon, and there's a part of me that wonders, does he actually deserve it? Like, the poem seems to emphasize his mistake. Odysseus himself emphasizes his mistake, which we'll get to. But there's a part of me that's like, no, Odysseus actually is kind of an asshole. Like, he is the one who's going around 
doing piracy to keep his crew happy and healthy. And Polyphemus calls him out on this, and Polyphemus is right. Like, admittedly, Polyphemus then starts beating his crew members' heads together and eating them, which, you know, isn't great. That's kind of monstrous. But nonetheless, Polyphemus didn't ask them to show up here, and the fact that they did show up here is kind of their own darn fault. So maybe he is totally justified in eating them? I don't know. It's worth a thought. Certainly worth considering, especially in context of all this hospitality talk. Like, how hospitable is Odysseus, really? Um, but anyway, obviously, he answered me from his pitiless heart, You're dumb, stranger, or from far away, if you ask me to fear the gods. Cyclopes don't care about Zeus or his Aegis or the blessed gods, since we are much stronger. I wouldn't spare you or your men out of fear of Zeus. I would spare them only if I myself wanted to. But tell me, where'd you leave your ship? Far down the coast or close? I'd like to know. So at this point, obviously, Polyphemus is not working in good faith with the Greeks, like Odysseus is rightfully suspicious at this point. So Odysseus lies, oh, I don't have a ship, Side and smash it to pieces, we're just stuck here. And this brought no response from his pitiless heart, but a sudden assault upon my men. His hands reached out, seized two of them, and smashed them to the ground like puppies. Their brains spattered out and oozed into the dirt. He tore them limb from limb to make his supper, gulping them down like a mountain lion, leaving nothing behind. Like he eats them bones and all. He just, like, swallows these people whole. Or at least, like, rips them into pieces and then swallows them whole. Which, again, emphasizes the savageness of the Cyclopes. Like, Polyphemus is as uncivilized as uncivilized gets. Um, he is savage among savages, even his friends don't want him around. But for Odysseus, this is such a huge violation of the hospitality code that it's almost unthinkable. And notice Odysseus stressed this to Polyphemus, almost like pleading with him. We are here, suppliants at your knees, hoping you will be generous to us and give us the gifts that are due to strangers. Respect the gods, sir. We are your suppliants, and Zeus avenges strangers and suppliants, as he says before. But Polyphemus doesn't care. He doesn't care about the gods. He's more powerful than the gods, or so he says. He doesn't have any respect for Zeus, which is itself kind of weird. Like, it is another indication of his savageness that he doesn't even respect Zeus, the king of the gods, but it's also like, really? Why do the gods let these guys do this then? Um, obviously, like we know about the Cyclopes from other traditions, Hesiod especially, where they are, you know, one of the other children of Gaia that the Titans lock up and then Zeus frees them. And apparently they have like an uneasy alliance with the gods and just somehow Odysseus has stumbled onto the Cyclopes. But notice that the Cyclopes, as they're presented here, are very different from Hesiod's version of the Cyclopes. Like, with Hesiod, the Cyclopes are responsible for forging Zeus's thunderbolts. That means that they have a sense of technology, a sense of civilization. If anything, they are craftsmen on the level with Hephaestus, which represents a large degree of civilization. Um, but here, they're just a bunch of random farmers getting food off the ground, randomly beating the shit out of people who wander onto their island. That's that's not right. That's not fair. Um, certainly not the same as what, what Hesiod is indicating. Um, but the emphasis here in Homer is, again, thematic. The Cyclopes represent a complete violation, a complete lawlessness, um, especially with regard to hospitality. Where Odysseus comes up to the Cyclopes, 
with gifts in hand, as you should, respectful, obedient, humble, and says, we entreat your hospitality, Polyphemus responds by, like, beating the crap out of his crew members and eating them alive, um, which sucks. Like, that's a huge violation. Um, and Polyphemus is punished for this. Like, obviously, Odysseus outsmarts him. We get this whole business with, like, first they... First, Odysseus realizes that he can't flee because, like, the cave is blocked with that giant stone. Um, so he has to find a way not to just kill Polyphemus, but actually, like, stop Polyphemus and do it while they're on the outside of the cave so they don't get trapped and starved to death in there. Like, Odysseus thinks he can take Polyphemus. He's got his sword. He can theoretically do it. But he knows that if he does, they're all starved to death in this cave. Um, so he's got to find a way out of this situation, and he's got to be smart about it. So first, they apparently blind him. Um, they take a sharp stick and they like harden it over the fire and then they like make it really hot and stuff. And then after Polyphemus falls asleep, they like stab him in the eye with it and put out his eye. Um, but before they do that, they have to get him to sleep. And again, there's like multiple steps to this plan. So they prepare their pointed stick and then they give the Cyclopes wine and Polyphemus drinks it and he's like, wow, this is really great. Give me more more booze. And Odysseus is only too happy to oblige. So they give him lots of booze. And finally, he's like, Polyphemus is actually pleased at this. Um, he's like really happy and wants to reward him. So Odysseus says, Cyclops, Cyclops, you asked me my name, my glorious name, and I will tell it to you. Remember now to give me the gift just as you promised. No man is my name. They call me no man. My mother, my father, and all my friends too. And he responds, no man, I will eat last after his friends. Friends first, him last, that's my gift to you. So when the Cyclops, when Polyphemus offers a gift in exchange for the wine, like, it's obviously bullshit. Once again, we have another violation of hospitality. He is lying to his guests in addition to eating them, which, you know, it's debatable exactly how much worse the lying is than the, than the eating, but, you know, it's complicated. At any rate, Odysseus tricks him. Um, Odysseus says, my name is No Man, which will become extremely relevant when they blind him and he's shrieking out into the night, No Man is killing me by some kind of trick! And because, you know, No Man, like, everybody laughs at him. If No Man is hurting you, then your sickness comes from Zeus and can't be helped. You should pray to your father, Lord Poseidon. Foreshadowing, this will be important later, pay attention. Um... So Polyphemus is shouting about how no man is killing him and everybody just like mocks him because, you know, no man isn't somebody's name and instead it sounds like nobody is hurting him. Um, so after he's blinded, apparently this doesn't inconvenience the Cyclops too much and Odysseus and company manage to like hide from him so they can't, so he can't like get them. Um, finally he like removes the doorstone and he like stands out trying to catch anyone who escapes with the sheep. Um, but you'll notice that once again, Odysseus has a wily plot. He hides all of his men by like climbing under the sheep and holding onto the sheep as they walk out of the, out of the cave. And Polyphemus even suspects this a bit because Odysseus climbs onto the bottom of like the strongest ram and Polyphemus is like, Hey, ram, you were always the first one out. Like you were never the last, but now you're, you're the last one for some reason. 
Um, why are you leaving the cave last of all? You've never lagged behind before. And we know that it's because Odysseus is clinging to his belly, so he's like weighed down a little bit more. Um, so this way, Odysseus and company manage to escape from the cave. They get out successfully. They have gotten past the giant boulder that would have caused them to you know, be stuck in the cave and starve. So, so Polyphemus is unaware of the fact that he has just let everybody go. And Odysseus has successfully outsmarted Polyphemus and gotten most of his crew to safety, despite the four that got eaten. Um, but unfortunately, Odysseus isn't satisfied with this. Um, when they get on the boat and they're on their way out, he calls out to the Cyclops just to rub it in here at line 475. So, Cyclops, it turns out it wasn't a coward whose men you murdered and ate in your cave. You savage. But you got yours in the end, didn't you? You had the gall to eat the guests in your own house and Zeus made you pay for it. And Polyphemus, even angrier, breaks off the peak of a huge crag. He threw it toward our ship and it carried to just in front of our dark prow. The sea billowed up where the rock came down and the backwash pushed us to the mainland again like a flood tide setting us down at the shore. So basically Polyphemus, hearing Odysseus taunt him, throws a rock where the voice is coming from and it's big enough that it makes a wave large enough that it pushes the ship back to shore and presumably back in danger. So the obvious solution here is shut up, Odysseus. Oh my gosh, you're going to get us all killed. And indeed, this is what the crew says. Don't do it, man. The rock that hit that water pushed us in and we thought we were done for. If he hears any sound from us, he'll heave half a cliff at us and crush the ship and our skulls with one throw. You know he has the range. They tried. But didn't persuade my hero's heart. I was really angry, and I called back to him, Cyclops, if anyone, any mortal man, asks you how you got your eye put out, tell him that Odysseus the Marauder did it, son of Laertes, whose home is on Ithaca. All right. Once again, we have to take this apart. First off, this is Odysseus's biggest mistake, and it is the classic heroic mistake. This is capital H, or really capital U, hubris. Odysseus is making himself known to his enemy. This is an act of supreme arrogance on the part of Odysseus. And it is the big mistake. This is the classic mistake. This is how you get screwed by the gods, is when you get so proud and arrogant that you start showing off in front of people. If he had just silently went back to his ship and silently sailed off, Polyphemus would never be the wiser. Odysseus would not have angered Poseidon. Everyone would be okay. Like, Polyphemus would just wonder where all of the people got off to and never be able to have a solution to his problem. That would be, like, the worst that happened. Odysseus and company would get off scot-free. But no, Odysseus has to rub it in. First, by calling back to him, and second, by telling him his name. And both of these are huge mistakes. The first one nearly gets his entire crew drowned, the second one does, in fact, get his entire crew drowned, though that will take a little while. As soon as Polyphemus hears that it is Odysseus, and notice, Odysseus the Marauder? Like, again, we just talked about how the Odysseus and company, are they pirates, are they not pirates? Here Odysseus calls himself a pirate. 
he is like, you were right. We were pirates all along. And now we just totally pirated the shit out of you. Like, what? What are you doing, Odysseus? What is, what is even happening here? You accept that you are a pirate. You accept that you are a marauder. You realize this and you let you flaunt it. You like violate all of the rules at this moment. Part of this is stupidity. He is right that Zeus is like getting Polyphemus back in some sense for his lack of hospitality. But Odysseus is totally screwing this up. He's just screwing it up like literally by, you know, causing Polyphemus to hear him, which causes Polyphemus to pray against him and causes Poseidon to be mad at him. He screws this up more figuratively in the sense that, like, he accepts the fact that he is a pirate. He acknowledges that he is a dick and even flaunts it. Like, this is so wrong on so many levels. This is the moment that's going to set up all of Odysseus's suffering to come. Um, so notice Polyphemus's response. Oh no, now it's coming to me. The old prophecy. There was a seer here once, a tall, handsome man, Telemos Eurymedes. He prophesied well all his life to the Cyclopes. He told me that all this would happen someday, that I would lose my sight at Odysseus's hands. I always expected a great hero would come here, strong as can be. Now this puny little good-for-nothing runt has put my eye out because he got me drunk. But come here, Odysseus, so I can give you a gift and ask Poseidon to help you on your way. I'm his son, you know. He claims he's my father. He will heal me if he wants, but none of the other gods will, and no mortal man will. And Odysseus, who, you know, isn't that stupid, responds, I wish I were as sure of ripping out your lungs and sending you to hell, as I am dead certain that not even the Earthshaker will heal your eye. At which point, Polyphemus prays. Hear me, Poseidon, blue-maned earth-holder, if you are the father you claim to be. Grant that Odysseus, son of Laertes, may never reach his home on Ithaca. But if he is fated to see his family again and return to his home in his own native land, may he come late, having lost all companions in another ship, and find trouble at home. This is where Odysseus is fucked. Like, notice the details on this curse. Notice how everything except the fact that he does in fact come home comes true. He does in fact reach his home on Ithaca because he is fated to see his family again, but look at the details. Return to his home and own native land, may he come late. And indeed, it's ten years after the Trojan War at this point. Everybody else has come home, only Odysseus is out. Having lost all companions spoilers by the end of book 12 literally all of odysseus's crew is dead on all of his ships we'll see the rest of the ships get crushed later in this section so don't worry in another ship he will come aboard on the phaeacian ship and find trouble at home i.e the suitors polyphemus gets his wish polyphemus could only have made this prayer and this curse if he knew who Odysseus was, which Odysseus himself gave him his name. If it wasn't for Odysseus getting proud, having hubris, calling his name out, Polyphemus would never have been able to make this prayer, and they could have gone on their merry way, no problem. But instead, Poseidon is in fact enraged, and Poseidon will dog Odysseus every step of the way. This is where... Odysseus deserves everything that is coming to him. This is where he makes a mistake large enough to warrant the gods hating him. P 
pious Odysseus screws up here, has a moment of weakness, becomes impious, and he'll pay for it. But notice, he realizes his mistake. The next move is to sacrifice to Zeus. Like, they land on the first island they possibly can, they give him the great ram that they stole from Polyphemus, they sacrifice it to Zeus in the dark clouds, and he asks for vengeance to protect him. Remember, Zeus is the protector of suppliants and guests. Zeus is the one who should be protecting Odysseus for pro properly observing hospitality originally. Zeus is the one who should be punishing Polyphemus for not observing hospitality. But notice the description here. This is line 545. The veterans gave me the, grain, the great ram, and I sacrificed it on the shore of the sea to Zeus in the dark clouds who rules over all. I burnt the thigh pieces, but the god did not accept my sacrifice, brooding over how to destroy all my bench ships and my trusty crews. On the one hand, Odysseus is totally right to do this. Polyphemus violated hospitality. He should be enjoying the protections of Zeus. Therefore, by sacrificing to Zeus, Zeus should protect him from Poseidon, all should be well, and Odysseus should be able to get home no problem. Again, Odysseus was wronged here. He came seeking hospitality, Polyphemus rejected it, and that should be it. But since Odysseus screwed it up, since Odysseus set himself up for failure, since Odysseus calls himself a marauder, it's probably warranted that Zeus doesn't pay any attention and that Zeus himself will aid in the destruction of Odysseus. It's complicated. It's definitely not clear. There's no very clear justice that is taking place here. But Odysseus is not scot-free. This is not the case of Odysseus, the heroic figure, humble, heat-seeking hospitality, rejected by Polyphemus, the awful savage, what Odysseus doesn't himself notice is the fact that Odysseus does himself deserve it. Like, even in the telling of this story, Odysseus gives us all the hints necessary to put it together. But notice that Odysseus himself does not re re recognize his mistake. The closest he gets is when he says, They tried, but they didn't persuade my hero's heart. I was really angry, and I called back to him. Odysseus thinks, not necessarily that he did the right thing, but that he was carried away and it was understandable. What he doesn't realize is that his very words attest to Polyphemus's rightness. This is not just bad hospitality on Polyphemus's part. This is bad hospitality on Odysseus's part. He came and did everything that would be expected of a pirate. Polyphemus is warranted. So it's tricksy. It's complicated. And Homer acknowledges this complication and still manages to communicate it even in Odysseus's words, even when Odysseus is sort of oblivious to this. This could be the earliest example of an unreliable narrator, whether or not uh, Homer himself or the writer of this poem originally saw it that way. Like, we can read this and see depth, nuance, that maybe even Homer didn't intend. But anyway... Moving on, we have more adventures at our disposal and we only have so much time left. So let's blast through Odyssey 10. 
First, they come to the island of Aeolia, home of Aeolus, son of Hippotus, dear to the immortals. And here on Aeolia, they get the right kind of hospitality treatment. They show up, they're wondering what kind of island it is, they're met by Aeolus, Aeolus treats them well, he invites them to a banquet, he gives them gifts, especially the bag with the winds in it. Everybody's happy. Except, then they're not. Because in this bag, he bound the wild wind's ways, and Aeolus's whole plan is, hey, if I give you the winds in a bag, then you can, like, use only the winds you want, and you can safely get home, back to Ithaca. Hooray! What a great plan. But then, the crew starts to get suspicious. For nine days and nights we sailed on, on the tenth day we raised land, our own native fields, and got so close we saw men tending their fires. They get this close to Ithaca! They are literally on the shores able to see the, the bonfires that people are setting to, like, cook food. Then sleep crept up on me, exhausted from minding the sail the whole time by myself. I wouldn't let any of my crew spell me because I wanted to make good time. As soon as I fell asleep, the men started to talk, saying I was bringing home for myself silver and gold as gifts from great Aeolus. You can imagine the sort of things they said. This guy gets everything wherever he goes. First, he's freighting home his loot from Troy. Beautiful stuff. While we, who made the same trip, are coming home empty-handed. And now Aeolus has lavished these gifts upon him. Let's have a quick look and see what's here. How much gold and silver is stuffed in this bag? All malicious nonsense, but it won out in the end, and they opened the bag. The winds rushed out and bore them far out to sea, weeping as their native land faded on the horizon. When I woke up and saw what had happened, I thought long and hard about whether I should just go over the side and end it all in the sea, or endure in silence and remain among the living. They're literally right there! They can see their shore, they can see the people on the shore, they're like so close, and Odysseus is like, alright, I need to take a nap because I'm exhausted, I've been tending the sails all by myself all this time. And the crew is like, let's open the bag that Aeolus gave him, because Odysseus is holding out on us. And they open the bag and the winds fly out and they blow the ship completely off course. And in fact, nine days they've spent sailing to Ithaca, the next time they go to shore is back on Aeolia. Like, Aeolus is sitting there like, hey, you guys again? What happened? And Odysseus responds, my evil crew ruined me, that and stubborn sleep. But make it right, friends, for you have the power. Odysseus has gotten screwed over by his crew again. Remember, the crew screwed up the first time when they were on the island of the Sicones, pillaging the place. They dawdled, and as a result, a bunch of people died. They screwed up with the Lotus Eaters. So many of them who ate Lotus ended up wanting to stay with the Lotus Eaters, so Odysseus had to drag them bodily aboard the ship and like tie them to the ship in order to get them away. Here they screw up again. They get greedy. They think that Odysseus is holding out on them. They open up the bag with the winds, and as a result, Odysseus gets blown back to Aeolus. And notice Aeolus's response here. Aeolus says, Be gone from this island instantly. You are the most cursed of all living things. It would go against all that is right for me to help or send on his way a man so despised by the blessed gods. Be gone. You are cursed by heaven. Aeolus withholds hospitality on the second round because he sees that there are bigger powers at stake here if odysseus got that close and got blown that far that means that zeus must be so mad at him right now 
Admittedly, it's Poseidon who's the main one that's ticked, but all the gods seem to be working against him now. And Aeolus is like, nope, I don't want any part of that. You get the heck off my island lest you bring misfortune on all of our heads. No gifts, no hospitality, no nothing. You are cursed. You are hated. You are cursed by heaven. So they leave. And their next stop also sucks. They sail for six solid days and nights, and on the seventh we came to Lamus, the lofty silly of Telpilus, in the land of the Laestragonians. And the Laestragonians are also horrible savage monsters. Much like Polyphemus and the Cyclopes, they seem to offer hospitality. Odysseus and a couple members of his crew go up to their palace, their big castle, where a bunch of people get suddenly eaten and the king tries to like devour Odysseus and his crew and they start pelting the ships with rocks and at this point they sh- they sink all of Odysseus's fleet except for his flagship only Odysseus and his immediate crew escape this adventure um all the others are destroyed where they lay um so once again we have like horrible monster devouring Odysseus's crew um forsaking the laws of hospitality and yet Odysseus cannot do anything about it. Notice that there isn't like a a retribution for the Laestragonians the way there was for Polyphemus. Like even if we acknowledge that Zeus doesn't do enough to Polyphemus, we do get Polyphemus blinded by Odysseus. Um, the Laestragonians, they can't do anything against the Laestragonians. There's no fighting. There's no like battle they just run like hell and watches their ship their ships get destroyed and manage to save themselves only by the skin of their teeth um so that's not great now the next stop is another one of our major visits they come to the island of circe um circe like calypso is a lady witch who offers a serious temptation here Um, But let's take this apart in the last few minutes we've got here. Um, So they come to the the island of Circe, and this time Odysseus gets wise and he sends his crew to parley with the inhabitants of the island. Like, he himself gets sidetracked when he runs into a stag. Um, But Eurylochus, his sort of, like, crewman and natural whiner, goes with Polites, his natural second-in-command, um... And a few other crew members, they go to Circe, they ask for her hospitality, and Circe gives it to them. I.e., she gives them food, and they give she gives them drink, but it's poisoned, and as soon as they eat it, they all turn into pigs. And notice again, we get this emphasis, line 254 and 55, she laced this poison with insidious drugs that would make them forget their own native land. When they had eaten and drunk, she struck them with her wand and herded them into the styes outside. Grunting, their bodies covered with bristles, they looked just like pigs, but their minds were intact. So, notice the details here. They are poisoned, they forget their native land, they are turned into pigs. Um, Circe is, in fact, violating hospitality rules here. Again, we have somebody. But notice that it is also in the guise of offering it. She deceives them. She makes them think they are safe and protected, fed, watered, etc. And instead, she turns them into pigs. Um, She violates them, the rules of hospitality, while appearing to do it properly. Now... 
Eurylochus, who apparently is super suspicious, and rightfully so in this case, manages to make it back and tell Odysseus. Odysseus sets off to save his crew members, and fortunately he is stopped by, Odysse by Hermes halfway along. Hermes gives him a warning. Where are you off to now, unlucky man? Alone and in rough, uncharted terrain? Those men of yours are up in Circe's house, penned like pigs into crowded little styes. You've come to free them? No, I don't think so. You'll never return. You'll have to stay there, too. Oh, well, I will keep you out of harm's way. Take this herb with you when you go to Circe, and it will protect you from her deadly tricks. She'll mix a potion and spike it with drugs, but she won't be able to cast her spell because you'll have a charm that works just as well, the one I'll give you, and you'll be forewarned when Circe strikes you with her magic wand. Draw your sharp sword from beside your thigh and rush at her with murder in your eye. She'll be afraid and invite you to bed. Don't turn her down. That's how you'll get your comrades freed and yourself well-loved. But first make her swear by the gods above she will not unsex you when you are nude or drain you of your manly fortitude. Notice the instructions here. First, Hermes gives him a drug, moly, which will protect him from the effects of the poison. Second, he will give him a charm, so when Circe tries to, like, turn him into a pig with her magic wand, it won't work. He's counter-protected. Then, he's supposed to, like, rush at her with his sword, and she's going to, like, back down and offer to sleep with him, which he should totally do, by the way. Notice... Hands are tied on this one. Odysseus has to sleep with the beautiful witch goddess thing. Then, but before they sleep together, Odysseus has to make sure to get a promise from her that she's not going to castrate him or drain him of his fortitude. And Odysseus does all of this with aplomb. Um, he, you know, drinks the potion, unaffected. Hit by the magic wand, unaffected. Charges her sword. She backs down and wants to sleep with him he demands that she not screw him over while they sleep together and then they sleep together and you know it's a good time the passage that follows is another example of hospitality here 370 to 400 we get some really lavish treatment of odysseus here Meanwhile, her serving women were busy, four maidens who did all the housework, spirit women born of the springs and groves and of the sacred rivers that flowed to the sea. One of them brought rugs with a purple sheen and strewed them over chairs lined with fresh linen. Another drew silver tables up to the chairs and set golden baskets upon them. The third mixed honey-hearted wine in a silver bowl and set out golden cups. The fourth filled a cauldron with water and lit a great fire beneath it. And when the water was boiling in a glowing bronze, she set me in a tub and bathed me, mixing in water from the cauldron until it was just how I liked it, and pouring it over my head and shoulders until she washed from my limbs the weariness that had consumed my soul. They treat Odysseus really well here. Um, Circe, once she is, like, defeated, once her initial wiles are conquered, Odysseus manages to get some really impressive grade-A hospitality. Odysseus manages to save his crew before he eats, like you should, um, so they all become men again, and she basically, like, treats the whole crew. Like, they all get fed, they all get plenty to drink, they all sleep peaceably. Um, it's a good time. But, notice, it's a little too good a time. This is the one place where it seems like Odysseus may border on actual unfaithfulness. Notice, he does sleep with Cersei the first time, like he has to, like Hermes told him to, but then they stick around. Notice around line 490, like, they've been treated well, Odysseus gets a super good bath, they get 
well fed and stuff. Like all the men get bathed. They all get tunics and fleecy cloaks. Like they're super comfortable. Cersei is really just earnestly nice to them. And we get this paragraph, this little passage. She spoke and I took her words to heart. So we sat there day after day for a year, feasting on abundant meat and sweet wine. But when a year had passed and the seasons turned and the moons waned and the long days were done, my trusty crew called me out and said, Good God, man, at long last remember your home. If it is heaven's will for you to be saved and return to your house in your own native land. This is the one time that Odysseus has to be reminded of home and not his crew. Like, all of these times we have the crew running into situations where they have to be reminded of home. They eat the lotus and they forget about home and Odysseus drags them kicking and screaming back to his boat. They reach home and it's, the crew isn't satisfied, they open the bag and they get blown back to Aeolus. When they get to Circe's island, initially they're turned into pigs and they forget about home. And Odysseus has to get them transformed back to remind them. But Odysseus apparently really likes those baths and or sleeping with Circe because they stay a whole year and it's the crew who has to remind him, but Odysseus, weren't we planning to go home? If there's a point where he is being unfaithful to Penelope, I suspect it's here. More ever than he is with Calypso, who basically is legitimately holding him hostage on an island he can't escape. Cersei, he could leave at any time. He's got his ship, he's got his crew, everything seems to be working out well. They got fed, good hospitality. Cersei's probably going to send him off with plenty of food and booze and all sorts of good stuff. No problem. But Odysseus sticks around. Odysseus sticks around for a whole year. Cersei's hospitality is a little too hard to pass up, it seems. Now that said, they do in fact eventually leave. After his crew reminds him, um, he goes to Circe and asks her to fulfill the promise he, she made to send him home. Um, they're eager to get back home. I guess. But if you want to point fingers at Odysseus, this is the time to do it. Um, there are two big mistakes in Odysseus's career. First is obviously totally screwing it up with Polyphemus and getting him and his entire crew just totally screwed over. If there is a place that he gets too far from Penelope's bed, this is it. But again, I'm not sure if Homer agrees on this. A year seems to be a pretty good amount of time for this kind of hospitality. Like, if it wasn't for the fact that they were trying to get home as quickly as possible, that literally the adventure of Aeolus before this one involves Odysseus, like, standing at his sail nonstop for nine days and nights, trying to get home as quickly as possible, only to get blown back off course, and then, bam, we're on Circe's island and he forgets about it for a whole year. I'm not entirely sure how to take this. I suspect that Homer is pointing to this as a failing of Odysseus as well. By our modern standards, this is definitely a screw-up. Like, if Odysseus is really so loyal to Penelope, this should not have happened. He should not have been distracted by Circe for an entire year. A couple weeks, sure. That's it. Um, at any rate, Circe gives, lays out the next stage of their plan to get home. And once again, there's going to be a detour involved. Um, now that Odysseus is heavy-duty cursed, he's going to need more than just to arrive back on Ithaca's shores. Remember, part of the curse Polyphemus laid down is all of his crew will die or abandon him, all of his ships will be lost, 
and he's going to come home on somebody else's ship. So Cersei uh, outlines this plan around line 510 in book 10. Son of Laertes in the line of Zeus, my wily Odysseus, you need not stay here in my house any longer than you wish. But there is another journey you must make first, to the house of Hades and dread Persephone, to consult the ghost of Theban Tiresias, the blind prophet, whose mind is still strong. To him alone Persephone is granted intelligence even after his death. The rest of the dead are flitting shadows. Now, this is Trixie. People don't go to Hades very easily. Now, what Cersei outlines is not really a trip to Hades itself. Instead, apparently, if you go to this, like, one special Hades-adjacent island, do some strategic sacrificing and some summoning ritual, I say carefully like she seems to be sort of implicating him in witchcraft which you know you can do witchcraft is sort of neutral in greek territory it's not like black magic in the christian sense where it's like you are deliberately consorting with satan like no this is this is legit this will apparently just summon the spirits of the dead at which point odysseus can consult with tiresias the only like seer who is still a seer after he's died and then tiresias can explain to him exactly what he needs to do to escape his curse and actually get home um this is going to be the next book book 11 um so a couple of notes here before we embark into book 11 like as you get ready to read for the next class session um first off we are going to spend this is going to be our longest venture into the land of the dead like we saw heracles run down into the land of the dead and we saw some of the details there we obviously saw orpheus in uh in ovid's metamorphoses hanging out in the realm of the dead this is going to be a long one and, Odys and odysseus is going to run into a lot of different dead people like tiresias is just the tip of the iceberg here um so first off note note obviously what tiresias has to say to him um like that's the whole point of odysseus's journey to the realm of the dead um tiresias has to give him pretty specific instructions as to how to evade his curse and they are involved um they are more than just getting home to ithaca there's a lot to it um both which we which we will see play out in the next section but also stuff that we will not see play out during the course of this epic um odysseus has more responsibilities even after he gets back home um so keep that in mind we will be looking at that specifically also look at the way the dead interact with him because while odysseus is bumming around with the dead he's going to see more than just tiresias he's going to see relatives he's going to see friends including some comrades in arms from the iliad um pay attention to what death actually is like for the dead because as much as we have seen you know heracles running down to the realm of death to capture cerberus or orpheus singing to the souls of the dead we haven't seen a whole lot of you know personal experience from the dead dead people talking about what it's like to be dead um this is going to be the clearest glimpse we get of the greek afterlife um, so pay close attention because it's not great like as much as we understand that there is like three parts the to the greek underworld like the elysian fields which are for heroes who do good things and they are rewarded and it's a place of peace and plenty and like tartarus which is where the titans are imprisoned and it's basically just hell but you know not because it's not christianity um there's going to be nuance here there's going to be some interesting details here 
Um, so pay attention to this whole section. Pay attention to to how Homer portrays the underworld and the experience of the dead. Um, pay attention to, uh, like, this is just a sort of side note because we'll pick up with this almost immediately. Um, the last, the first person that Odysseus is going to meet is actually one of his crew members. Um, the last chunk of book 10 describes how Elpinor, the youngest of their crew, apparently, like, gets super wasted and sleeps on Circe's roof. And, like, when Odysseus is like, all right, guys, it's time to go, Elpinor is like, yes, coming! And he jumps up and falls off the roof and breaks his neck. Um, Elpinor will be the first person who confronts Odysseus from beyond the grave. So keep this in mind. Um, it's an important detail, and it will have consequences down the road. Um, but, yeah, be, be, pay it close attention to what goes on in the realm of the dead the other adventures that odysseus has in book 12 are also important like we'll we'll talk about them as well um but there's a reason why the visit with the dead takes an entire book like there's a lot going on there um so anyway we will talk about that next time uh in the meantime i'm also putting together some stuff as far as the research paper is concerned um, I'm hoping to get a big deal, maybe even video something put together. Uh, more about that in the near future. Um, it's just like I've been wanting to do something like that for a while and it can serve both of my classes. So yeah, we'll see. Um, anyway, enjoy your reading. Enjoy the further adventures of Odysseus. We will talk more next week.